Radio Mano Papachango. We're at Kusa slash Saheli Falls in Oregon. Um, you and I met in Seattle at your little meetup group there. And Seho is the reason that I know who you are. Say hi, Seho. Hi, Christopher. So we're watching all this water tumble down in our tumbling little altered brains. And just having so much gratitude for the winter that people endured while I was sitting on a beach in Spain. And... Um, watching the water move down through the mountains so thanks for all you do keep it up i hope that your travels are amazing and maybe we'll see you in the van soon ciao hi chris hey everybody uh my name is connor i live in indianapolis indiana and i'm just hanging out with my cat here <laughs> i'm not that interesting apparently uh, hey. Uh, so I ate some small amount of mushrooms today, and went on a bike ride uh, through the city. Came home, looked at my life, looked at my brain. Um, got some new directions. Uh, listened to Aroma in the shower. Um. I just want to put forth some gratitude in the form of an audio message for you. Uh, <laughs> don't even worry about putting this up on the podcast. Uh, thanks, dude. You're really cool. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate those messages. Uh, for the record, you do not have to be in an altered state of consciousness to send me an audio intro. All you have to do is record it on your phone, try to keep it under 20, 30 seconds, and send me the MP3 at intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. Thank you. Uh, and it's very cool to hear from people, whether you're standing by waterfalls, someplace beautiful and exotic, or you're just chilling on the sofa at home with your cat. I'm happy to hear from you wherever you are, whatever you're up to. So thank you for that. This episode is with a guy named Derek Jensen. He's um, a beautiful guy, I have to say. Uh, met with him, I think, uh, second week I was on the road on this trip. Uh, he's been called the poet philosopher of the ecological movement. He's written uh, several books. Probably the, the most well-known is called A Language Older Than Words, which is... Um, started out being about interspecies communication, as you'll hear uh, him describe, and migrated into something uh, more along the lines of how and why we silence animal, non-human animals, um, in the sense that we pretend they don't have language. They, we pretend they're not speaking to us, and that they're not, in many cases, lamenting. 
um, what we're doing to them and, and in some cases to each other. Derek is clearly a very, very smart man and also a man whose heart and eyes are open to where we are at this particular historical juncture. And um, I think you'll hear the sadness in his voice in in some cases, in some moments. Um, He's a man in the process of heartbreak, as I think are all of us who are paying attention. There's a storm coming, people. There are big, big storm clouds coming. We've got a president and um, an entire political party, ruling party in this country, that is in absolute denial of what's happening in the world, uh, what's happening economically in terms of the widest disparity between the top and the bottom of the um money mountain uh, since the 1920s. And I think we've surpassed the 1920s. That never ends well. Uh, There's no historical precedent. There's no historical case of a situation in which a society became so economically skewed that half the people were living hand to mouth and uh, 1% are living in mega yachts and that society corrected itself. It doesn't, these situations don't correct themselves. What happens is they collapse into revolution or anarchy or depression, uh, violence of some sort, blood is in the streets and there needs to be a massive reset. And unfortunately, you know, we're like the smoker who doesn't try to quit until well after the doctor has uh, pointed out that our lungs are shriveled and our chances of dying of lung cancer are extremely high. We keep smoking. We keep going. And we tell ourselves it's not going to happen to us. And yet it always does. Anyway, anywho, that's um, that's what this episode's about, and I hope I hope I didn't bum you out too much uh, to listen to it because I think it's really interesting and well worth your time. Um, I really enjoyed getting to meet Derek and bounce some ideas around with him. He's an extremely thoughtful guy. So I am coming to you from Idaho Falls, Idaho. I'm sitting in a parking lot outside a Marriott Residence Inn whatever that is. Um, every once in a while I get a room and use the Wi-Fi and take a shower, and then I wonder why, because the goddamn air conditioner's so loud and it's freezing cold and the light comes blasting through the windows and the pillows are weird and I'm like, the van is so much better. Uh, it's It's strange. I... In fact, in one case, I was with a couple of friends, and we got a room in this lodge, and they slept in the room, and I slept in the van. Um, And I was happy to be in the van in the parking lot. So that's where I am. I get a room in a hotel, and I sleep in the damn parking lot. I don't know, and I'm happy to be there. So 
things are pretty good. I am wondering why I have an apartment at all at this point. This nomadic life is so good for me. And I miss my friends in L.A. I miss Simon and Kyle and Neil and Kaj. And, you know, they've all been on the podcast, most of them. And um, I miss my mom. And, you know, I, uh, I have a life in L.A. that is fun and cool and I enjoy it. But I'm paying a bunch of money for rent uh and for the last few months it's just been for a box to keep stuff and i don't even have that much stuff you know i mean if you added up the value of all my stuff uh it's not worth the last two months of rent that i've paid and as much as i miss my friends in la i also really enjoy being able to cruise around and meet the friends i haven't met yet the people who I'm introducing you to in this podcast largely and some people I, you know, don't interview for the podcast but that I've been so happy to hang out with and and uh, who show me their towns and take me canoeing and rafting and walking in the woods and to their favorite pizza place and introduce me to their friends and it's just so fucking great to have that network of you tangentialistas out there speaking of which if you're in colorado or you think you might be in colorado i am probably going to be holding a tangentialista get together in either boulder or denver on the first of august still thinking that through but it looks like the first of august is going to be the date um, check social media or stay tuned for the exact location. I'll nail that down probably before the next episode goes up. Um, this episode is brought to you by Sunbasket. Yes, again, Sunbasket. They're fantastic. Last time I talked about how, you know, for a young man looking to impress women, Sunbasket could be an excellent uh, option because everything comes sort of, it's not prepared. It's not like you're ordering from a restaurant. You're cooking it. But it's as if you've got Julia Childs or somebody there in the kitchen with you sort of helping out. Here, use this much of this turmeric and this much salt and this much that, and then you do this. And so it's you're still cooking it, but you've got a hand there. And so it's very impressive. It occurred to me, I was talking to my mom on the phone the other night. My mom's an excellent cook. So this is not only for people who don't know how to cook. My mom's a great cook, but since my dad died, she's living alone. And cooking, for one, eh, you know, it's a lot of hassle, and it's easier sometimes to just, you know, throw something really quick and easy together. And I know what it's like. I've lived alone a lot of my life, if not most of it, and I can't really get motivated to make anything special for myself. Um, but when you have friends over, it's easier, right? You're creating pleasure for other people. So it's, uh, easier to get motivated and put some time into it. Anyway, it occurred to me that Sunbasket's also an excellent option for somebody like that. Somebody who lives alone, whether, you know, it's they're older or whatever age they are, if you're living alone and you don't have that time or, or the motivation to make something special for yourself because, the effort to reward ratio just doesn't work out. What we normally do is we reduce the reward. We say, okay, then I'll just, you know, fry up a hamburger and throw some of those frozen fries in the oven and boom, there you go. It's a shitty dinner, but it didn't take a lot of effort. 
But the other way you can make that ratio work out for you is to make it easier. And so what do we do? We use, like I said, frozen French fries or frozen pizza or, you know, easy TV dinner bullshit. But that's not healthy. And what Sunbasket does is they make the effort much less, the reward much higher, and so they get that ratio skewed in the right direction. And they also do it at a price that works out. I mean, with your 30 bucks off your first two orders, it works out to $5 a portion. That's less than you'd spend if you went to McDonald's, right? So at least, I would say, take advantage of the half-off deal and get a couple of orders and see what you think. And let me know because I'm always happy to hear from you. And uh, from my experience with this food, it's fantastic. I love the way it's packaged. I love the cookbook that comes that's free with each thing that has 18 different recipes, um, including ones you didn't order. So you've got all these recipes there, and you don't need to be tied to Sunbasket. You can collect some of these cookbooks, and if you end up going on vacation or you move or you lose your job or whatever it is and you're like, hey, I can't afford it anymore, fine, cancel it, keep the cookbooks. It's cool. And like I said, 30 bucks off your first two orders, which is half off. Um, that's 30 bucks off each. I think they're 60 bucks per order, so 30 bucks off the first, 30 bucks off the second. So why not? If you live in the United States, I, I keep forgetting that a lot of you don't live in the United States. I hope you'll forgive me for this stuff. Um, but this is, yeah, they're not shipping to Australia right now. But maybe they will someday. I hope they do. Anyway, Sunbasket. To get that deal, go to sunbasket.com slash TS for tangentially speaking. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a guy named Kevin Russell, uh, who I'm going to have on the podcast here a few episodes down the road. He's one of these people that I met on the trip, um, ran into him in a parking lot in uh, Glacier Falls, Montana. I ended up hanging with him over the 4th and met his girlfriend and his beautiful daughter, Sophia, who I think is four. Um, and he said something that really stuck with me. Uh, we were just sort of marveling at how beautiful she is and how open and strange and funny and goofy. And, um, you know, she's at that age where she's just transitioning from pure animal to human, but she's got the animal magic. Uh, she's steeped in it. And Kevin said one of the things that he'd learned being a father is that infants and toddlers are drunk and little children are tripping <laughs> and I thought man that really sums it up you know you see a, a little toddler he's just a little drunk he's just stumbling around drooling all over himself babbling uh but then they get to that age where they're wearing their little princess outfits and or they're like super into dinosaurs or whatever they're into little boys, little girls, little whatever they are, they are so magical and so unrestrained and, and unedited and unfiltered and unprotected. They're like, they're tripping. It's so beautiful. And, and then I thought, that's why it's so horrible when people abuse kids in any way. 
from the the war, you know the horrible things that you're imagining right now to to just saying you know shut up you're ugly or you know you talk too much or ah whatever and we all have those impulses and i i'm not blaming any parent that you know loses their patience sometimes that that happens but but don't let your kid believe you when you say that shit try not to say it obviously but when it slips out make sure you go back to them later and say hey you know daddy was angry about something else and you know i'm not telling anyone how to parent all i'm saying is that when i first took mushrooms halloween night 1980 um it felt like i was home it felt like i had returned to a place that i knew so well where magic was obvious and this sort of skeptical wordy consciousness that I'd learned in the previous five or six years was clearly an artifice that only described a small proportion of my experience and and after listening to thinking about what Kevin said and, and spending time with these little kids it occurs to me that maybe the reason it felt so familiar to me was that that's what it was like. I was a tripping little kid and I kept tripping a long time. I was a weird teenager. So I think I kept that sort of mystical, magical um, reluctance to embrace consensus reality. I held on to that for as long as I possibly could. Um, some of you may have heard stories about me wandering around the house in a loincloth when I was 14 years old. Um, you know, I, I was in a trance and I just wanted to stay there. And so it doesn't surprise me that when I found hallucinogens, it psychedelics took me back to a place that, um, I really valued and loved. And it was a place where it was obvious for example, that animals had consciousness and personalities, not to use an anachron or uh, what's not anachronism, what's that word uh, when you personify an animal? Um, yeah, they have animalities, not personalities. They have character. They, they have individuality. Um, and I swear, I, I, some animals have a sense of humor. I, I think I've seen sense of humor in dogs even in cats it's a very dry sense of humor but i've seen cats look at me like ah, <laughs> yeah we know what's funny here um anyway that's my thought for the day kids are trippers let them trip protect them nurture them your your job is to guide them through their trip into a nice smooth landing at about 15 or 16 or whenever it happens um, and get them through those years until they figure out how to get back there on their own later through meditation or sex or drugs or music or whatever it is that opens those doors back up again. All right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate your attention. I value it. Uh, I'm very grateful for it and uh, all the support that you give the, the podcast through Patreon, financially, through uh, PayPal donations, all that's on my webpage, 
thatchrisryan.com. And for those of you who can't afford that kind of stuff, just tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes, um, or just send out some positive energy into the universe. It all helps. We need it now more than ever. Thank you, and I will catch you again soon. I'm going to play you out with a tune I, I may have played last year. It's a funny video. If you get a chance, check out the video on YouTube. It's uh, The band makes fun of themselves, but it's a groovy tune. It's called Summertime. I'm playing it for obvious reasons here in late July, and it's by a band called Fort Francis. Hope you enjoy the groove. Catch you soon. Well, here it is, a groove slightly transformed Just a bit of a break from the norm Just a little something to break the monotony Of all that hardcore dance That has gotten to be a little bit out of control It's cool to dance, but what about the groove That soothes the mood romance? Now give me a soft, subtle mix And if it ain't broke, then don't try to fix it of the summers of the past Adjust the bass and let the alpine blast Bob in my CD Let me run around and put your car on cruise Lay back cause this is summertime Summer, summer, summertime Time to sit back in a while Summer, summer, summertime Dressing less and checking out the fellas to tell them who's best. Riding around in your Jeep or your Benzo, or in your Nissan, sitting in Lorenzo's. Or back in Philly, we be out in the park. Place called the Plateau is where everybody go. Guys out hunting and girls doing likewise. Honking at the honey in front of you with a light eyes. She turn around to see what you're beeping at. It's like the summer's a natural aphrodisiac. Now I'm gonna compose this rhyme to hit you and get you a clip for the summertime. Summer, summer, summertime. Summer got girls there The temperature's about 88 I hop in the water plug just for old time's sake Break to your crib, change your clothes once more Cause you're invited to a barbecue that's starting at four Sitting with your friends as y'all reminisce About the days growing up and the first person you kissed And as I think back, makes me wonder how the smell from the grill Could spark up nostalgia All the kids playing out front Little boys messing around with the girls playing double dutch while the DJ's spinning a tune as the old folks dance at your family reunion And then six o'clock rolls around You just finished wiping your car down It's time to cruise, so you head to the summertime hangout It looks like a car show Everybody come looking real fine Fresh from the barbershop, a fly from the beauty salon 
Every moment front and maxing Chilling in the car, spent all day waxing Leaning to the side, cause you can't speed through Two miles an hour so everybody sees you There's an air of love and of happiness And this is the Fresh Prince, new definition of summer madness Summer, summer, summertime sitting in the woods with Derek Jensen who is Mike Shy. so if you hear him fade out I'll uh, bring him back in thanks for doing this I, I've been wanting to talk to you for or talk with you for a couple of years now right yeah well thanks for having me yeah yeah that's really you know one of the reasons I don't do this podcast over Skype is that it gives me an opportunity to meet with people I'd really like to meet you know in person and I feel like if you just do a Skype thing, you miss that opportunity to sit in a room with somebody. I I think I probably first heard of your work. Could it be twenty years ago? Twenty five years ago? When when did your first book come out, and, and what was it? Well, the the I had two books come out at the same time. Um, one was called Railroads and Clearcuts, and the other was called um, Listening to the Land. Mm. That was ninety five. And neither of those made a uh, particularly huge splash. And then the the first larger splash was A Language Older Than Words, which was 2000. So that'd be 19 years ago. Right. That's probably the first one I I heard of. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so you've been – what is the language older than words? Is that the the language – by which nature communicates with itself? Where would you locate that? Well, um, (laughs) I wrote that book back when I was in my 30s and back when I still had a memory. So I actually remember (laughs) the language from the book, which is, there is a language older by far and deeper than words. Oh, see, here we go. I'm in my late 50s now. It's like, I have no idea what. Anyway, there's a language older by far and deeper than words. It's the language of body on body, wind on snow, rain on stone, it's a language of symbol, gesture, memory. And and yes, the point is that um, there verbal language is very important, and I'm not dismissing or demeaning it, and I'm also not in any way suggesting that humans are the only ones with language, because mm. Uh, they've assembled, they, scientists have assembled a dictionary of at least 1,500 phrases that uh, plants use um, to communicate with each other. Those are sent out through pheromones and stuff, and that's certainly a language. And prairie dogs have a language. They have a different word for a person with a gun than person not with a gun. Mm. They have a different word for person with uh yellow clothes versus green clothes different word for human versus coyote and um 
so there are those languages, and then there is also. I'll back up a second. That um, a language older than words was originally supposed to be a sort of very happy book about um, interspecies communication and about the dissonance between our public and private discourse about interspecies communication. Because I would talk to people, and they would all, if you say, so do you participate in interspecies communication? They would say no, and then they would think about it for a second, and then they would realize that they have, they communicate with their dogs all the time. But then, I mean, for example, how does the dog let you know the water dish is empty? Looks at the water dish, looks at you, looks at the water dish, looks at you. Um, And so that's a form of communication, but then they would never talk about it in public because they were afraid they would be ridiculed for saying that non-humans can think and can communicate with humans. Mm. And so I was really interested in that dissonance between the public and private discourse. I tried to write that book for about a year, and then I realized what I was really interested in was how before you can exploit somebody, you have to silence them. And so that's like a step beyond this dissonance. Mm. It goes down to um, there is a, a systematic silencing of non-humans, by which I don't mean that there is a conspiracy or a cabal of seven people who've decided that we all need to silence non-humans, but instead it's, it's been accreting this this culture of how we perceive the world affects how we behave in the world and how we have been taught to experience the world affects how we perceive the world. And so we have been taught over several thousand years that non-humans have nothing to say to each other or to themselves or to us or to anybody. Um, In fact, they have no emotional life whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. There's a great line by a Canadian lumberman. When I look at at trees, I see dollar bills. Mm. And the local newspaper a couple years ago had an article about why crabbers work so hard during the crabbing season. And they had this line in there about how um, each crab was worth about $1.50. And they said, imagine if there were all these envelopes scattered all over the ground and each one had $1.50. And you would run around as fast as you could picking up the envelopes. And that's true. But crabs aren't actually envelopes full of a dollar fifty. They are beings in their own right, with their own lives and their own uh, functions within the larger biotic community. And that doesn't mean that nobody can ever eat each other. But what it means is that if you perceive all the crabs as a dollar fifty in an envelope, you treat them differently than if you perceive them as mm. other beings who will die and, and be eaten by someone, but that doesn't alter the fact that they are living beings whose lives are as valuable to them as yours is to you and mine is to me. Mm. And so I was really interested in how that silencing takes place on, it's it's actually a deafening, you know, because you're not actually silencing them because they're still talking. Right. Instead, it's a, um, a diminishment of one's capacity to perceive Mm-hmm. And uh, not just capacity, but will, well, capacity and willingness. Yeah. Don't know which comes first. We can certainly talk about that if you want. Isn't it interesting how the trajectory of society, uh, I think about this all the time, uh, how comfort 
which is something that we aspire to generally, is in fact numbness. Comfort is separation of self from stimuli. So I think about the way I traveled uh, when I was young. I backpacked a lot and I couldn't afford, you know, anything, uh, always bottom level. And so I'd be in the room, the bunk room with all the other backpackers, chaos, noise, smells. But I met people there, interesting people, some of whom are still my friends 30 years later. Now when I travel, I have a little more money. I get a private room, often tinted windows, air conditioning. I don't meet anybody. It's a totally different thing. Um, I don't know exactly. I, I guess I was thinking of Descartes and this idea of animals just being automatons and how that makes us more, allows us to be comfortable in our exploitation of animals in a way that we might not be if we treated them, as you're suggesting, as living beings whose lives are as valuable to them as ours are to us. Well, I have a, a bunch of varied responses to that. Um, and thank you for that. One of them is, I, I hear you, and I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I'm thinking about comfort having gotten older myself. Mm. And I'm thinking about the same thing, that when I was 24, at one point, I was driving around the country and um i didn't have any didn't have much money and um i i realized i started keeping track when it when it i started noticing a pattern that i slept in i think 130 different places in 180 days and a lot of times that would be just stopping in the middle of idaho and pulling off onto a side road and then pulling off of that and throwing my sleeping bag down mm-hmm. and I can't do that. It's, I, I was I was very I felt very validated when yeah. when I was reading an account of Tecumseh's life, and at one point, a bunch of Indians are going to go on a raiding party against the whites, and they convinced this guy in his fifties or sixties to go along with them, and he says, "I'm only going to do it if I can take my tent. I'm too old for this." Yeah, and so I, I think there is, I, I don't. I don't want to uh, valorize discomfort mm. and and suggest that. So, I mean, I think I think that comfort itself. I think that that when it goes to sleep, a bear would rather be comfortable than not comfortable. I don't mm. think there's a problem with wanting to be comfortable itself. Maybe we can tease something out of this. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there, there's something I think about quite often, which is um, maybe in the 90s, I think in the late 90s, I interviewed Theodore Rozak, who wrote The Makings of a Counterculture and wrote some other very good books. And my interview with him was honestly pretty disappointing. And it was be- I didn't know when I went in, he had done a lot of work that was really good stating how civilization is inherently unsustainable, it's inherently alienating, it's really problematical on every level. That's all great. What I didn't know is that he had had a change of heart right before I interviewed him. Mm. And I'm not trying to make a pun at all, but the change of heart was because he had had open heart surgery and it saved his life. And so he realized that modern medicine is really miraculous, so isn't this all grand? Mm. And 
Yeah. I was horrified. And the interview was never published, and I don't even think I bothered to transcribe it. But the lesson I learned in that conversation is I, w- I was able to articulate to myself that how a social system benefits you is not the means by which you should judge that social system. Indeed. Otherwise, <clears throat> um, as two white people here, we should be supporting chattel slavery right. as it existed in the 1830s because that benefited the white slave owners, mm-hmm. and which obviously neither you or I would support. And the, the point is that, that that's not how you judge. So I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody I interviewed decades ago was, was making the point that all human emotions are natural, are okay. So there are reasons for anger, hate, love. Those all have ecological or social communal underpinnings. And the problem is that when they, is that when those can get divorced from reality and can also get divorced from when, when they can become neurotic, um, can sort of drive us. Um, I mean, so if you right now drop the microphone and punch me in the face, well, after being shocked, I think it would not be inappropriate for me to get mad or scared or something. The problem is, would be if I were mad or scared right now when we're sitting in these two chairs Mm. with microphones in our hand and you don't have your hand in the fist. And it's the same with comfort, that when comfort becomes not just a part of life but the point of life mm-hmm. is this making any sense at all yeah, I mean, feel yeah. free to jump it's in contextual and... yeah have you ever read anti-fragile no uh no need to i would say it's a nicholas talib uh, he's an economist anyway he wrote the black swan that was a real big thing it it's one idea that I think is really interesting and then the book is just spinning it out over and over again but the idea is that if I ask you to imagine something fragile, you might imagine a champagne glass and we put it in a box and I shake the box and boom, it's gone, right? It's shattered. And then I say, okay, now in that context, imagine the opposite of that. And you might imagine a brick, put the brick in the box, we shake it, nothing happens. His point is that that is not actually the opposite of fragile. The brick is um, it's not anti-fragile, it's non-fragile. It's like if the champagne glass is 10, the brick is zero. It's not negative 10. Negative 10 would be something you put in the box, you shake it, it gets stronger. That's the opposite of fragility, something that flourishes on the trauma or the shock or whatever it is that, that shattered the glass. So he points to relationships, complex systems, muscle tissue, the immune system, right? All these things, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger type things, right? And so I started, when I read that, I started like looking around and applying that to different parts of my life. And around that time, I was visiting a friend and they had just bought this like very expensive mattress with all natural latex and, you know, organic this and that. And the woman said, uh, you know, see what you think of the new mattress in the guest room. And, you know, so the next morning I was at breakfast and she said, what would you think? And I thought, wow, I didn't think anything because I just fell asleep. 
So I guess it was great. But how great is it when you don't actually enjoy it? It's just the absence of nuisance, right? It was the absence of discomfort. It wasn't comfort. It wasn't, I don't even know if we have a word for it. It wasn't active comfort. So, and I thought, well, what would be, so if that mattress, that experience last night was the zero, the brick, and so what would be the sort of positive experience of comfort? And then I thought about when I was hitchhiking through Alaska and it would start to rain and I'd set up my tent and get in my tent and there's freezing rain, and but I'm in my tent and I've got my sleeping bag and my mixed nuts and my salami and a bottle of wine and I'm happy and comfortable six inches away from freezing rain. That's when I slept really deeply and I felt some sense of triumph in my comfort. You know what I mean? So I think I agree with you. Comfort itself is not a negative, but I feel like when we get more money, often what we do is we isolate ourselves. In Spanish, the word aislar means to isolate and to insulate, both. I feel like our insulation deadens us in some ways if we're not very conscious of what we're doing. I agree, and... Um, I, I keep thinking about how how everything is connected and how how so often when when you introduced steel blades and pots to traditional cultures it would um, mm. ramify mm -hmm. throughout the culture it wasn't just I mean this is taking us into Lord Mumford territory which we can go to or not whatever you want but I mean I love Lewis Mumford but anyway um I think that um, I think that Mumford was right when he talked about certain technologies being authoritarian mm. and he's talking about two things with that that one is that certain technologies require an authoritarian power structure mm -hmm. such that if you're going to have a car, you got to have metal. If you're going to have metal, you got to have mines. You're going to have mines. It means you have to have a military to take the land from the people who live where the mine's supposed to be. You got to have a police force to force people into the mines. You got to have a police force to guard the entire transportation system. It's all there. In did he take it right back to agriculture, which I think necessitated the first sort of hierarchical social structure. You need the army to protect the fields, to get more fields. You need someone to control the sowing and the harvesting, someone to protect the harvest, because and then you dole it out over the winter, and who decides that, and yeah. Yeah, 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 he did, actually. Yeah. That wasn't his main thing, but, but I, I remember now that that's where I learned that the first cities had walls not around the outside to protect them from raiders, quote-unquote, mm. But they had walls around the granary mm -hmm. to protect the granary from the right. people who lived there. Right. And 
Um, so yes. And so part of his point is that certain technologies require certain power structures. Right. And then part of his point also was that the technology itself is authoritarian in mm. that it it ends up being in charge. And that's why I was so excited when I read his book in my read his books in my 30s because he articulated something that I'd been floundering about, but I I'd been asking my whole life is like who's in charge? Cuz you know, are you going to drive 199 out of here or over? So, yeah, you are driving 199 over to I-5 and up over to Bend. Mm -hmm. so you're not going 101. Mm -hmm. Okay, 199, you get into Grants Pass, and you you enter nothing against people living in Grants Pass, but you enter a version of hell because in the last 25 years since I've been driving through Grants Pass before I moved here, it has just gone, I mean, sort of, it has been constellarized. It has been just expanded greatly with all these malls and, mm. and like, every every couple times you drive through, there's a new subdivision or a new, and, you know, almost everybody hates that. It's people who live there. It's like, oh, well, I moved here and it was nice. Right. And, and I also experienced this with, I've experienced this myself with where I grew up in Colorado, and I know almost everybody I talk to does not want to go to where they lived as a child, especially if it was in the country, mm. because the meadows are gone. Yeah. And I was doing a talk in Lincoln, Nebraska 15 years ago, and my mom grew up, I was born in Lincoln, and my mom grew up there, and she told me where she grew up, and it was, I went to the address, and she told me all these stories about riding on cows from her mom's house to her grandma's house across the pastures. There's no cows there. There's no pastures there. There's nothing but suburbs and malls and and you know, certainly I am not the first. Mumford's probably not the first to say, you know, cities aren't designed for people. Mm. They're designed for industry, they're designed for mm -hmm. at this point they're designed for cars. Yeah. And Who's in charge? And it, it, if the planet weren't at stake, I would find this whole thing farcical that um, that they're talking seriously about the planet. I mean, the planet could end up like Venus, and we have to reduce carbon emissions. And they, with a straight face, they talk about the needs of the economic system for. Um, you know, we need the gas and oil. We need the, we need the, we need the, the solar. We need the, we need all this industrial power. I was like, no, actually, we don't. The industrial need economic growth. system needs it. Yeah, exactly. Um, human beings don't need it. I asked uh, Anurad Mittal, former director of Food First, um, if the people of India would be better off if the global economy dis disappeared tomorrow, and she laughed and said, "Of course they would." There are former granaries of India that now export dog food and tulips to Europe. And there are people starving to death because of the global economy. And then I asked Vandana Shiva the same question about, it's like, okay, that's fine for the people in the country, all the subsistence farmers. They'd be better off, obviously. All the people displaced by dams would be better off, obviously. But what about um, the, uh, what about the people in Mumbai? Um, the people in the slums. I asked Vandana Shiva that, and she said, of course, they'd be better off, too, because why are they in the slums? They're not in the slums because they want to be. They're in the slums because they were forced off their land so that Coca-Cola can have the land, et cetera, et cetera. And 
you want to talk about instant land reform, stop, uh, stop the industrial military from protecting the global transnationals, whether they're Chinese or European or U.S., whatever, from stealing land. You know, my mom went to Africa back when, back in the 90s, and she said the local people there were just complaining bitterly about all their land being taken for lima bean farms for mm. for Europe. And the question is, I mean, as always, who's in charge? And it's just so... That's what I love about Mumford's analysis. Is he was able to help me understand that the system is in charge. And Isn't it great? Sorry. I was just... I think about this all the time. People are worried about aliens coming from another planet and enslaving us, right? Or AI getting out of control and enslaving us. And I'm like, do you not realize we're already enslaved? Have you not corporations, institutions, you know, I mean, what you were saying, take that to the next step where, you know, you have these multinational corporations. Now, I I often say, what if the head of Exxon, the, the CEO of Exxon, went to Peru with his son and did some ayahuasca and had an epiphany and came back to work Monday morning and said, Guys, board members, we can't do this anymore. This is crazy. We can't, we're, we're d- d- drilling in deep oceans. We can't possibly guarantee we're not going to destroy. He'd be out before lunch. He's not in charge. None of these people are in charge. You talk to all these in, in Civilized to Death. I, I did this whole thing about the miserable rich. They're working 60 hours a week. The guy's worth $20 million. He's working six days a week. W- who's winning? If that guy's not winning, right? I mean, if rich people were way happier than the rest of us, at least I'd say, well, fine, you know, at least there's that. We can understand it. Right, but they're fucking miserable, you know? And I I think a large part of it is because too much comfort, like too much money, too much beauty, too much anything, is toxic. I think they're isolated and alone, surrounded by this money. I don't know. It's it's all. I agree with you. It's uh, it's doubly tragic because who's in charge are not actually people. It's not actually a cabal of evil Jews somewhere. Whatever. If it were, if it were, it'd be easier to deal with. Yeah. This is this is one reason when I talk about resistance that I will talk about how it was appropriate and courageous for various members of the German resistance to attempt to kill Hitler. Mm. Because in that case, the removal of that one figurehead would have made a tangible difference. And pretty much most reasonable historians, I don't want to use a reasonable, because anyway, most, a lot of historians believe that if, for example, George Elser had succeeded in killing Hitler in 1939, there would not have been World War II. Mm. Um, because he was personally so important. And when I talk about that, I also say, you know, I I am not calling at all for people to assassinate whomever the president is, because that's not really how power works here. Right. We could make the argument, we could have made the argument that assassinating Idi Amin might have made a difference because so mm-hmm. much power was centralized. Right. Um, but here, it's the, it's the corporate state. It's a right. much, much much smarter means of an authoritarian system where it's not 
Oh, I don't remember who this is, but there's a um, there was one activist who said that basically we have a democracy theme park where people can pull the levers and everything, but that's okay because they're not connected to anything. Hmm. And um, it's reminiscent of Frank Zappa's line that uh, politics is the entertainment division of the military-industrial complex. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, so what do you... So Ted Kaczynski, who, with whom I imagine you probably have a lot of agreement, and I certainly do, the manifesto made a lot of sense to me, but blowing up random people seems like calling Verizon and screaming at the guy at the call center. Like it's not going to fix your phone or fix the system. Yeah, that's a that's a a problem that I have with a lot of, uh, especially individualistic resistance, is that it isn't part of a larger strategy. Mm. And I think, especially especially when one is going to participate. I think this is true generically, um, but it's especially true with something so final as violence, is that I think one does need to examine one's motivations. Mm-hmm. And um, a, a, a great example of the whole question with motivation is I have a friend, George Draffin, with whom I wrote a couple books, who back in the early 80s brought Earth First to Washington State and then by the late 80s, he was disavowing Earth First, and not because his politics had changed, but because Earth First had changed. And he said the difference is that in the early 80s, a lot of the people in Earth First were really angry about the destruction of the wildlands they loved. And what happened was Earth First then attracted a lot of people who were angry and they had found an outlet for their pre-existing anger. Mm. And there's a world of difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that yeah. has to do with the, um, you know, lashing out at some random person at a university. I guess Kaczynski would probably say they weren't random, but some functionary at a university um, or some professor. We'll just call a professor at a university or... Um, or an actual going for a lever of power. Right. And part of it is, and, and this is a, this is a, I don't know if we want to get into this, this is a problem I have with a lot of the black block type actions too, is that a lot of them are, uh, are, um, I, I very much understand the anger. I mean, the, the classic line about if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And, and I get chided a lot for, for my work being so angry. And my response is always, if you're not going to be angry about the murder of the planet, you know, then then obviously there's nothing in the world worth getting angry about ever. Mm. Um, but that doesn't alter the fact that I think we should we should be able to talk cogently about how we want to get from A to B and how... Um, how our actions will tangibly move society toward the goal that we want. So I'm presuming that as someone who writes, I mean, I'm, I'm going to presume your motivation is similar to mine, that, that we think that, uh, as a doctor friend of mine says, that uh, 
correct diagnosis is a first step toward proper treatment. And that mm. if we can make it a little bit less, less mechanistic, that uh, if we can articulate things that we know in our heart to be true, but to which we've not yet put words, we might help others to do the same. And then with armed with that understanding, they can alter their own actions to um, to resist more effectively. I mean, we talked earlier about Mumford, Neil Everton's books were so important to me, Susan Griffin, all these books helped me to your work. Edward Abbey, presumably. Edward Abbey. Well, you know, Edward, Edward Abbey is really interesting because um, people ask me sometimes about both Edward Abbey and Daniel Quinn, mm. and I am in no way dis- dismissing either one of them. Um, I read them too late. Mm. And when I read them, I really enjoyed them, but they validated rather than yeah. broke because I didn't read Abby till maybe I was 37, 38. Uh, right. And by then I've already, already wrote language all the words. So right. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Desert Solitaire. Just, yeah. I love the book. Yeah. I and read it, it when I was like 19. See, there yeah, you go. It, it blew my mind. Yeah, exactly. Had I read, yeah. well, it's very interesting. Had I read it at 19, it would have scared me. <laughs> at, at 22, I would have been ready for it. I was a little bit of a late bloomer that yeah, way. Yeah. You ever um, read Pilgrim at Tinker Creek? Oh, I love that book when I read it when I was 27. Yeah, it was a beautiful book. Yeah. she. I read an interview with her, and she said the only book she had in mind when she was writing that was Desert Solitaire. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? That is cool. And they're so different. His is so masculine and desert. Yeah, that surprises and me. And she's so feminine <laughs> and, and interconnected and complex. And yeah, it's beautiful. I, I really I love that book. She wrote a book that took place out here, too. I think it was, I forget what it was called. But I remember it was in the Pacific Northwest. I'm just going to throw a name out because it's like the only other book of hers name I know, The yeah. Holy. Could be. I think it is. Could be, yeah. Which I think I actually read that book. I don't remember it, but I read it decades yeah. ago. Yeah. she's Annie Dillard is the, the author we're talking about. She's a great writer. Um I interrupted you, but I, I did want to get into, like, were you raised in a radical family? You, you got in a little bit to how you were radicalized, some of these books that sort of really affected your consciousness and, and how 19, you were very different from 22. What happened in there? Where, well, I was, no, I was raised a fundamentalist Christian. Oh, well, that's Adventist. radical. Yeah. Um, and the one good thing I can say about it, two good things. One is, I think it's really, really good that from what for one day a week you don't do any shopping you don't watch tv mm. you don't you don't do anything we couldn't even read novels we couldn't play sports you can't do anything quote worldly but worldly is very interesting because you could play in nature because that you know i i, I don't want to get too much into whether that's worldly or not but but what this meant is that that a as a kid i never watched a single cartoon because mm. they're on saturday morning mm. instead well it was church and then after church i'd be out playing in the meadows playing in the irrigation ditch uh we would a lot of times go into the back country and take walks so that was a good thing this was kansas no this colorado oh, oh colorado okay I, I, you mentioned uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. You mentioned yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where yeah. that's we moved out of Nebraska when I was four, uh-huh. and actually we moved when I was nine months to Maine for like three months, and then back to Nebraska, and then back to Colorado, then to Colorado. Anyway, um, 
So my first politicization, really, was when I was in second grade when they put in a subdivision next door to where I lived. Mm. And I realized that, I mean, all the garter snakes were gone, the the meadowlarks, the butterflies, the grasshoppers, the um, cottonwood trees. And I remember thinking in this language in second grade, so I'm seven, that where will they go? And I remember thinking, if people keep doing this, they won't have anywhere to go. And so the language I didn't have, but this was a huge politicization for me, was that um, you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Mm. Of course, I couldn't say that when I was seven. Right. But I understood that. You grokked it. I grokked yeah. it. Yeah. And another thing that really politicized me was um, my father's extremely violent, and uh. he broke my sister's arm. My brother has epilepsy from blows to the head. He raped my, my mother, my sister, and me. And I remember thinking, thinking again i couldn't articulate this but i remember the question and this is still we talked about this earlier if his behavior is making him happy why is he doing it because he was not a happy guy and it's like beating the crap out of my brother didn't make him any happier so i was i mean as well as terrified i was i was baffled mm. like how and so, I mean, so much of my work that has been informed by that, you know, there's R.D. Lang's three rules of a dysfunctional family. Rule A is don't. Rule A1 is rule A does not exist. And rule A2 is never discuss the existence or non-existence rules A, A1, or A2. And, <laughs> I've never read that. And, That's the double bind. Yeah. And you can see how that applies yeah. to the larger dominant culture. Yeah. That... Um, Nothing personal against you, but I'm guessing that your next book is not going to have a first print run of 250,000. No. (laughs) (laughs) And um, on the other hand, if you were promoting wind and solar as the solution to all the problems, your print run would probably be a little bit bigger than it's going to be. Right. And if you were, you know, we can can just pick any books off there that are... I mean, you see where I'm going with this, yeah, that, yeah. that certain, certain narratives are reinforced. The utility of an idea determines its popularity. The utility for the system. Exactly. Yeah. And um, Which is why I think, no disrespect to Charles Darwin, but so much of his thinking has been co-opted and twisted. He's almost like a Jesus of science, in a way. He was so much more about... Uh, symbiotic relationships and love and mutual appreciation and he's turned into this you know uh this god of dominance you know it's a crazy thing people who are listening to this can't see me over here rubbing my face and shaking my head (laughs) it's 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 you know it, it makes me I mean, you, you, you mentioned Jesus, and it blows me away. Let's presume for a second that Jesus existed, mm. and let's presume that he said you should love your neighbor, etc. And it only t- it didn't take very long for people to be killing each other in his name. <laughs> and do you know about That's the so Homoousians and the Homoousians? No. Oh, I love this story. It was like, I don't know, 400 current error or something, 300, somewhere in there. The, uh, the Homoousians and the Homoousians were killing each other, because one group believed that the Holy Trinity was three in one, and the other group believed that they were one in three. And the difference was that one had an umlaut over one of the 
O's or U's or something, homoousians and homoousians who believe that there's either three and one or one and three, and they were killing each other over this. <laughs> and it's great. I love this story that the um, they had a big bishop synod to see who was going to win out. Yeah. And they never came together on who was actually correct because each side... Uh, figured that, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I, I left off an important thing. The other thing is, they had a big fights over whether the fires of hell were spiritual or metaphorical. I'm sorry, spiritual and metaphorical or real, literal. So that was a big fight. Mm. And they had a big synod, they got together, they're discussing this, and they agreed to disagree, each one knowing that the other one would find out soon enough whether the fires of hell were spiritual or real. And it's the same thing with Charles Darwin, that you know, he does talk about symbiosis, all this. And then within a few years, you have basically the 19th century version of, of Richard Dawkins turning this into this sort of selfish gene stuff, which didn't originate with him. That was right. 1900. That was really popular. Right. And yeah, it, it, survival of the fittest, right? Like Darwin never said that. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to survival of the fit, how well you fit into your community. Right. Right. And, you know, it just, it just kills me. I have to say this that, that, the notion that evolution is based on pure strict competition is so stupid that I can I can show it's not true in one sentence if you give me a couple of semicolons. Let's do it. And that's those creatures who've survived in the long run have survived in the long run, semicolon. You don't survive in the long run by hyper exploiting your surroundings, semicolon. You survive in the long run by improving your habitat. That's how you survive, is by making the place better. Mm. That's what salmon do, that's what redwood redwoods do. I mean, sure, there are elements of competition, mm -hmm. um, but I think about this because there's bears all over the place here, and I've seen so. I, I've this is the first year I've not seen any bears yet. Most years I'll see a bear every day at least. Really? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And so I've seen plenty of baby bears, and one of the things I've noticed I find really fascinating is quite often, um, one if there's if there are twins, one twin will be fairly aggressive, and the other will be very timid. And when I have seen them eat, usually the aggressive one eats more. He's stealing from his mom, too, her mom. The baby is stealing from the mother, stealing from everybody. It's just, if there's any food there, that's the one that gets it. And so, like, why does this happen? And then it, it, became, it also became clear to me, because I would see these same bears. I could recognize them. And the more aggressive bears often would take more risks climbing further out on limbs. The other is just timid in every way. And then it became clear to me, these are different survival strategies mm -hmm. that under certain circumstances aggressive baby bear is going to do much much better but aggressive baby bear is also the one who's going to fall out of a tree and die is fall off a cliff is going to eat poison because mm -hmm. it eats the wrong thing and timid bear is a different survival strategy mm -hmm. and back to darwin etc that this is something that horrifies me i'm gonna okay I sometimes, and I'm not really making a joke, I sometimes despair of human sentience. And it has to do with exactly what you're talking about. You take this great idea and it gets turned into its opposite really quickly. And I think about this with postmodernism, that you have this idea that we understand that stories are told by those in power. And that there are different narratives, and you can you can talk one way about the American Civil War, and you can talk another way about the American Civil War, and those 
whoever wins tells the history. And we all know this. And, and you know, we know that history is primarily made up of, of the stories. I, have, I love this line from Edward Gibbon about if we're more moved by the burning of a palace than we are the burning of a hut, then we have a very skewed understanding of human misery. Mm. And But we hear about the burning of the palaces. We don't hear about the burning of the cottages. We hear, yeah. you know, we hear about 9-11. We don't hear about the U.S. infliction of, mm. or we hear about, and we don't hear about the, the, the 200 species going extinct today. Mm. We, there are stories we hear and don't hear. So postmodern deconstructionism has a brilliant beginning, and then somehow they end up making it that there is no physical reality, that all there is is narratives. I mean, yeah, the fact that there are different narratives as to how you can perceive physical reality doesn't mean there's no physical reality. How can people be so stupid as to... And this happens. It's not just postmodernism. This yeah. happens like every time. You take, hey, yeah. love each other, and then you end up killing each other in that name. It, it makes me think of what you said earlier about, about your friend Earth First. How it starts with people who have a sort of a nuanced understanding... And but then something about that perspective attracts extremists who then undermine the power of the idea with their extremist views, and also, by the way, invite ridicule and attack from the sort of normative system. Right? I mean, it's just, I, I see it happening with the Me Too movement and with uh, gender equality, and you know, all all the stuff that's happening now, where there's all this sort of um, backlash against ideas that are really legit, but they're overstated. And I think, for me, part of the, you know, there's a, there's a book, John Lamb Lash wrote a book about Jesus, in which one of the things he does is talk about what are the message parts of the me Jesus's message that are unique to Jesus? Hmm. Interesting. The ones that are separate from those of other religious leaders, right. and he um, he says they're basically love your enemy and turn your turn the other cheek, which he both and I agree. He thinks those are both codependent, <laughs> and he finds it really problematical. And that the Old Testament is the abusive father, yeah. and the New Testament is the abuser's ally telling you to just suck it up and uh, interesting. pretty interesting analysis. I yeah, like it. Yeah. Anyway, the, the the point is, this is all a long introduction to, if I had to, to say, first, I think the central message of all of my work is that this way of life can't last, and I would prefer that there's more life left on the planet when it's done than less, mm. if I sum up everything that's right there. But if I had to say what is unique about my message, what you're going to find in my message that you don't find in a lot of others, I would say, I don't know if this has come across, but I've sure, sure tried, I would say a couple things. One of them is that I don't think that most social decisions and most opinions even, and this is probably true on a personal level too, are made on a reasonable, conscious, intentional level. I think that most decisions are made based on our neuroses slash psychoses, prior woundings. Mm. And um, most of our decisions, 
So information itself, like there's a book we've got circulating right now called Bright Green Lies about how solar won't save the planet. It's actually quite harmful to the natural world and through mining, through the installation of the solar facilities and through the uses. I'm, I'm sorry, how does more industrial electricity help desert tortoises? Um, and and also because you know Jevons paradox. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love this. I got I got to say this, that um, Jevons paradox. He was a economist in nineteenth century, and he realized that when you are able to use coal more efficiently, it doesn't decrease coal use but increase it. Because people use more energy. Because energy becomes cheaper. Energy becomes cheaper, so you right. use more. Right. So it's not that you make this thing that makes it so you can heat three houses with the same amount of coal, what you do then is you build two more houses mm. or four more houses or right. six more houses. Right. And so and so, so it ends up uh, that uh, there's, a, there's this guy at Oregon State University who's done the numbers on all this and um, essentially solar, wind, et cetera, don't replace any fossil fuels at all effectively it's, it's a very small amount it's like one unit out of every 10 or something it basically just adding on all this is is you know so i went to college oh i never told you i got radicalized um <laughs> so part of it was Let, let's just, before you go i want i want you to go there but let's finish this for people who are listening so they really grasp this okay because i think that's really important i hadn't thought about it that way so the passive energy that everyone's celebrating and we have to we talk about shifting to passive energy but in fact what we're doing is expanding the pool of energy and according to this paradox what tends to happen then is we increase our consumption of energy and the shift never happens because that's, now we need it all. That's exactly correct. Right. And that's what's happened with every time when they discovered oil, when they discovered they could burn oil, they didn't stop burning wood. There's more wood burned today than there was before the age of oil. Really? And when they got when they started putting in big dams for hydro that didn't decrease oil. Right. Everyone has added on to the ones before. So it's like serving twice as much food at lunch with the idea being that we're going to save half of it for dinner. But what we do is we eat all the food and we just get fatter and fatter. Or we invite more and more people. More and more people to lunch. To lunch. Nothing gets saved for dinner. Nothing gets saved yeah. for dinner. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I was, I got a degree in physics and then. That's your undergrad degree. Yeah, and uh, this is going to apply to the current situation, right. not the radicalization. Right. And then I took a year of grad school because I had a year left of eligibility for left for high jumping, and I wanted to do it. So I went to the easiest thing they offered at the Colorado School of Mines, which was mineral economics. And I did one year of that, but the high jumping didn't work out, and I, I quit grad school. So the point is that one of the things I remember from this, the difference between economics and mineral economics, is that mineral economics... Okay, economics is, is you have a donut store, and how much how much dough do you buy? What sort of dough? You buy the cheapest dough, supply and demand, all that stuff. Right. Mineral economics is presuming there's not an infinite supply of dough. Mm. So it's like with copper mm. or oil. And the one thing I remember from all those classes 35 years ago is that you get the cheapest source first. So you mine the easy copper, and then you mine the next easy copper, and then you mine the copper that's kind of harder. And I mean, that's, that's one of the things I love is when you have 
something you learned in school that actually you can <laughs> see applicable. how it works. <laughs> yeah. And so the way this applies here yeah. is that, you know what energy return on any energy invested is? Have you done podcasts about that? A little bit, yeah. No okay. podcast, but I've read about it. Okay, so for the, for the listeners, basically, it's how much energy you have to put in for how much energy you get out. Right. And so E-R-O-E-I. And so for the early oil, it was absurdly high because you can scoop it up, which doesn't take very much energy, and then you burn it, which provides a lot of energy. And so first thing, you scoop it, and then you start drilling, and then you start drilling offshore, and then you start drilling deeper, and then you do shale oil where you fracking. have to do all this weird stuff and fracking. Yeah. That's all just classic. You do the easy ones first. Right. And oil has a much higher energy density than do batteries, than do... So, of course, all of the so-called climate change movement is really an industrial response to peak oil, that they need more energy. And they, they know that, that oil is slowly going to decline, slowly, quickly, whatever, it's going to decline. They need more energy sources. And, I mean, it's, 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 it's horrifying to me that the environmental movement was, at one point, Edward Abbey, um, about Earth first, Earth first. Mm. Um, at one point, it was about protecting wild places and wild beings, but it's been co-opted into being about sustaining this destructive culture. Right. So you can have 100,000 people march on the streets of D.C. or Paris, and if you ask them why they're marching, they'll say to save the Earth, but if you ask them, what are your demands, they will say... Uh, we want subsidies for the wind and solar industries. Seriously. So basically, the environmental movement has been turned into a lobbying arm of the, much of it, has been turned into a lobbying arm of the industrial capitalist system and for the expansion of. That's another thing. What do they do with all this extra electricity? What do they do with all the, this, this? It's used to destroy the planet. I mean, that's that's what GNP is, is is a measure of how quickly the earth is being destroyed. I mean, it's a measure of how quickly the living are being converted to the dead. So a little pushback on that. If the environmental movement, if if this impetus toward uh, shifting or just developing, let's say, um, passive forms of energy. No, it's not passive. It's the... Solar, wind, but I'm not talking about so-called passive solar. sustainable. Passive solar is just siding your house, right? Black so, and which which bees do. I mean, that's right. That's, that cold-blooded right. animals do that. I right. mean, that's, so I'm not talking about passive solar. I'm talking about uh, solar energy harvesting facilities. Right. Why is there governmental resistance to this? I mean, Exxon and the other big energy companies own the government pretty much. So why would there be resistance? Why wouldn't the government be funding development of alternative fuel sources oh, they aggressively? Are. They are. The, the, it's really hard to get numbers for the subsidies because everybody lies. Mm. Um, and this is true. If you talk about military subsidies, if you talk to an anti-war activist, they'll say, oh, it's 100 gazillion dollars. And if you talk to somebody from the Pentagon, they'll say our subsidies are very small. We need more. We need more. Yeah. And and also it's 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 hard because how do you tell I just saw this thing a couple of days ago about the subsidies for for the oil industry are a gazillion dollars, is however much. And a lot of that is putting monetary value on life on the earth. 
I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not in support of the oil industry. Um, I am. Uh, I am against putting monetary value on life on the planet because that presumes we can, and presumes that everything. I was doing a talk at Yale University. I mean, a, a, a Skype at Yale University one time. I think it was Yale, and. A lot of the people there were saying, you know, monetizing nature is the way to go. It's the only way to save nature. Mm. And I was trying to argue the case against them, and I, I wasn't able to get through. And, and finally, I said, you know, actually, I agree with you. And in fact, it's not just the best way to save nature. It's the best way to save human beings. And we need to monetize everyone's value. So I was thinking slavery is essentially monetizing human beings. Well, right? and, and they, yeah, and, and the people at Yale agreed with me. And mm -hmm. they said, in fact, that, you know, life insurance companies do it all the time. And mm -hmm. Lawrence Summers, you know, infamously Good said point. that yeah. some countries we need to, to pollute more because the lives, the, the value of the lives there are less. And those countries are under polluted, to use his word. <laughs> under polluted. Yeah. And, <laughs> on, and, um, uh. and so I, they were all agreeing that, yeah. that the best way to to be to figure out make these decisions is by monetary value and I, so i said to one of the kids i said okay great you know i got i got some news for you which is okay you're at yale so we can presume that your lifetime earnings are probably going to be let's say let's call it a million bucks i'm, I'm sorry let's say, let's call it four million dollars and he said okay i'm at yale sure i'll probably make four million in my life i said so the present value of that money is a million bucks right you know, if you had a million dollars now, that's four million over your lifetime. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, we can, as long as we're making up numbers, sure. I said, well, I got good news for you, which is I made a deal with your parents and I bought your life and I way overpaid. I gave them five million bucks and I'm going to kill you now. And he didn't get it. And the, the point is that that's what we're saying about a forest, that a forest has a value of X million dollars. Well, that means if I pay X million and one dollars, then it's a good deal. I can just cut down the forest. I can do what I want. But the problem is you could have, if somebody gave you a trillion dollars for all the phytoplankton in the world, what would you breathe? Right. We're talking about different value systems. Yeah. And so back to the pushback question. Um, first off, solar actually receives, in terms of financial, solar actually receives pretty good good subsidies and they the dollar amount per kilowatt hour produced harvested generated whatever you want to say is i don't remember the numbers but it's about five cents a kilowatt hour for solar right now through r d uh direct subsidies for buying them and for oil, these are only monetary. This is not including destruction of the natural world at all for any of these. And this is United States figures from a few years ago. Uh, the uh, oil, I think, was 0.8 cents per kilowatt hour. Really? So mm -hmm. the subsidies actually, first off, that there's that. Second, they aren't opposed to it. In fact, BP is one of the largest solar manufacturers in the West. Mm. And, excuse me, third, also... We have to recognize that at the same time, okay, what capitalists agree on is that we all need more of everything. We need more, we being the corporations, need more resources, we need more energy, we need more, 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 more. But they don't agree on how it should be allocated, and there are sibling squabbles, there are fights. Mm. So think about this in terms of the Colorado River. More than 100% of the Colorado River has been allocated for uh, agriculture and industry 
And that's why the Colorado River no longer reaches the ocean. And, and city municipal use you, but municipal use is small compared to agriculture industry. And so they would, all the different sectors of capitalism would agree that they need to take the water out of the Colorado River. But the uh, computer manufacturers think it should not go to those nasty people growing alfalfa in Arizona. And the agriculturalists believe it shouldn't go to those nasty people building. So they're all fighting for parts of the pie, but everybody agrees the pie has to get bigger. Mm. So that's why there can be pushback, is because the sort of mainstream climate change movement is having become, in essence, a lobbying arm of the solar and wind industries, they lobby for more subsidies for them and less for oil. And the oil industry lobbies for more subsidies for them and less for wind and solar. It doesn't mean that they both want, and they would agree that there has to be more subsidies, more development, more everything. Yeah, nobody's lobbying for less consumption. No, not except you and me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm driving a van around, so. Well, we both know that is not, personal consumption is not where it's at yeah. i mean you could yeah. you and i could both die of heart attacks right now and it would not stop the functioning of the system dude i didn't have any kids that's my contribution I, I, which is a big one neither yeah. me, me neither yeah i think i think if we all you know anyone listening to this who's wondering what can i do what you know i think if you don't have kids i don't know i mean i'm not driven by guilt and shame in general but if i were i think that would relieve a lot of it just knowing that I, I didn't have kids and, you know, okay, I'm done, I'm out. Well, I have I have gotten... Okay, so first, I wrote an essay called Forget Shorter Showers, where mm. it's it's really... And this is the power of, of language. So I'm doing a talk 20 years ago, and I go to the bathroom, and in the bathroom there is this poster that shows water use by sector. And I go out, do my regular talk, but this poster just sticks in my head. And the reason it's stuck in my head is because people always say, oh my gosh, we're running out of water. First off, we're not running out of water. The water's being stolen. It's not like it's disappearing. Mm. And it's not like the Colorado River is no longer, the reason it doesn't reach the ocean is because the water's being stolen. Mm. And that'd be like if you go out to get in your van and it's gone and saying, oh, we have peak van. No, it's like somebody (laughs) stole your van. (laughs) And it was just past pink van. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so that's, but people will always say, oh my gosh, we're running out of, it's like if you see a newspaper article, we're running out of water, that means we need to take shorter showers. Yeah. Well, here's the thing from that chart, which I've verified, is that um, 95, 90% of water is used by agriculture and industry. The same amount of water is used by municipal humans as it's used by municipal golf courses. Mm. So if you want to really save some water, Taking a shorter shower is not the point. The point right. is, first thing, get rid of golf courses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are there are larger targets, longer levers is the point. Right, right. And nobody in their right mind would have thought we could have stopped Hitler by composting, riding your bike to work, right. taking a shorter shower. It's like I did a talk at Bioneers 15, 18 years ago, and it was all fine, except the thing that broke my heart and horrified me is I was the only person there who was talking about either power or psychopathology. 
Hmm. And I don't understand how you can talk about social change without talking about power. And I don't understand how you can talk about the murder of the planet without talking about psychopathology. Um, which brings us, loops us back to something I said earlier on about, I said there's two things that I think differentiate my work from a lot of other people's work, environmentalist work. And one of them is that I think that for the most part, people don't make decisions based on reason, but instead prior wounding or whatever. And, um, you know, John Livingston wrote this great book called um, The Fallacy of Wildlife Conservation. And in there, one of the things he talks about is that you can make all these reasonable arguments you want, but it's really a state of being. I mean, do you love the natural world? You can't argue somebody into it, really. You can give them arguments if they do have that state, but if they don't have the state, Anyway, the second the second thing that's that's kind of unique to my work is that I think that the culture is dominated by a death urge, um, an urge to destroy life, and I, this culture I don't believe that's inherent in the human condition. I don't think it's inherent in the living being condition. I mean, we all live and die. That doesn't mean we have a death urge. It doesn't mean we want to. And we all life feeds off life. You know, we all whether we're eating a turnip or a fish we are eating someone whose life was just as valuable to them as theirs was to, as, you know, same as what we said earlier. And, and part of this culture's problem is that we only take, and we don't, even when we're dead, you know, we fill our bodies with poison instead of, of going back. And, and, you know, I don't know, we don't have to go there, but there's, very, very quickly, I think part of the reason we have this death urge is decades ago I was interviewing Luis Rodriguez who wrote Gang Days in LA, La Vida Loca about how he was a gang member in LA and he got out through the literature of revolution and one of the questions I asked him is why do kids stand on street corners shooting at mirror images of themselves if they're so unhappy, I mean why don't they go pop a capitalist or something, you know, it's like why and, pop a cap and a capitalist I mean, that's a source of right. poverty in right. many ways he said, well part of the problem is that a lot of the gang members are teenagers and teenagers want to die and the reason teenagers want to die is because teenagers are supposed to die what that means is you're supposed to die as a child to become an adult but what they don't understand because nobody's telling them is that this death is supposed to be spiritual and metaphorical mm. and ritual and you're supposed to undergo this process wow that's a powerful socially. idea and so they they have the impulse they know they have to die right so they participate in all this killing of mirror images and incredibly self-destructive behavior when what they need is someone saying dude i know what you're going through and or, or female you know it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be male yeah um i know what you're going through and this is what every adolescent every teen who has ever lived has gone through because you're undergoing these changes mm -hmm. and here let's ritualize it right let's shed your skin i mean it's just, that's the jesus story yeah um yeah you're right that's the that's the story Born of again. seeds yeah. planting you know seeds seeds the plant dies and then the, the new seed comes up yeah. it's that's the story of eating you know right. the one being dies this being now lives and Death then this being life. dies and yeah. then i die and then somebody eats me and and it's the same on the larger social scale. I think that there is some part of us that knows that this way of life, A, will end, and B, has to end, 
and see is miserable and we want it to end. And but not enough people are telling us that this way that this way of that this 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 end should be metaphorical and spiritual. Uh a societal transformation, which, by the way, I'm not going to sit here and sing kumbaya because I don't believe that's going to. Have, that's not how social change works. That you and I suddenly say this and everybody goes, "Oh," and then everything changes because there is this material reality. And social change takes a long time. Anyway, I want to say something about that. That Peggy Reef Sanday, uh, anthropologist, wrote about why some cultures are high rape and some are low rape, and. One of the characteristics of many of the characteristics are ones we expect. Highly militarized cultures are high rape. Um, cultures where women are, women and children are treated poorly in general, probably high rape. Um, if there's a male creator deity as opposed to a couple or a female, it's mm. probably high rape, which is mm. really interesting because how would you come up with the idea that a male creator deity? That's kind of weird. Yeah, that that's, takes some thought to get there. Anyway, um, low levels of breastfeeding. I think high levels of propaganda because mm. if you're a male and you want if you want females to be subservient to you, um, then it's one thing if I say to um, a female, you know, you need to do what I tell you. But then when I leave, she's not around. So if I can get her to internalize that by saying, mm. "Hey, there's a god out there who's He's watching. watching you all the time <laughs> to see if yeah. you're naughty or nice." Yeah. Then, um, if she can internalize that, and if she can internalize the notion that this omnipotent creator, abusive God is out there, I got her, man. Because she's not resisting just me. She's resisting an eternity of either spiritual or literal flames. And anyway, so one of them, though, that that, that is the one I wanted to bring up right now, is that we... uh, one of the characteristics of a high rape culture is a history of ecological dislocation in the last three to four hundred years. Mm. And so what, okay, that's her talking and now me, I'm extrapolating from there. What that suggests to me is that when a society gets stressed, oftentimes men take it out on women, mm. which we've seen when a mill closes, rates of domestic violence go up. You know, we all know this in general. And which all of this is, by the way, one of the big reasons that my work has been so... Uh, women-centered in so many ways is because I see this culture is collapsing and so we have to we as males have to make our allegiance to women now we have to do what we can the time to try to curb those uh, the, the that male violence that happens through uh, sharp social change we all know what happens when a patriarchal society civic society collapses um, and the time to try to stop that is now, not when people are breaking down somebody's door. Anyway, the the point is that it's, it's three to four hundred years. What that tells me is that that's how long it takes for a culture to metabolize trauma mm. and to really transform. It doesn't happen. I remember, I think the year I was at Bioneers, one of their uh, catchphrases was the shift is hitting the fan. And... That's not how social change works. Mm. I know. I love this line. There's this line this one guy said, which was, um, it takes 10 years to change your mind. And Mm. I know for myself, I think it's a little bit faster, but it's still years. When the first one to introduce me to the notion that evolution is based on cooperation was John Livingston. Mm. And I read The Fallacy of Wildlife Conservation, and then I interviewed him. And as he's saying that evolution is based on cooperation, I didn't disagree with him out loud, but I'm thinking... 
dude, you're getting old and losing it. I mean, mm. everybody knows evolution's based on competition. Everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't want to wreck the interview. Right. And it took me about two years before I could no longer conceptualize how evolution could be based strictly on competition. Mm. So people individually change their mind. Gradually. Gradually. Yeah. And yeah. I think as on a social level, it's even more gradual. Yeah. And it takes a long time, which unfortunately we don't have. What do you think about the notion that maybe it's supposed to be going this way? That we're a larval stage <clears throat> and our purpose was to create technology and technology is the life of the future. I cannot tell you how much I hate that idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I cannot tell you how much um, I find that narcissistic. Uh-huh. And, oh, so the oceans are supposed to die so you can have a computer. Well, so the computer, and I'm not advocating this. Oh, I know, I, I know. Just, when I look at what's happening, it's like, okay, these these entities, these superorganisms w- within which we're embedded, right, the corporations, the institutions, that you know we were talking about earlier who's in charge what's in charge whose interests are being served by this obviously not ours as living you know and no uh, living life, life on the planet is not right so who's winning right machines machines are winning it's uh, corporations are winning which are which are according to lewis mumford mega machines they were the first mega machines so it kind of seems if you look at it from that perspective you say okay they're winning their interests don't include living biomes. They don't give a damn. They don't need that stuff. Which they is don't one reason breathe. they're winning, by the way. Right. And so they don't breathe. They don't need clean water. They don't whatever whatever they need. They're getting. They're they're finding ways to get what they need, and we're falling by the wayside because we are no longer necessary. I mean, look at increased productivity in the industrial process, and now we've got you know meth epidemics everywhere because no young man has a way to make a living you know in in the heartland and look at industrialization of farming and we agree farming itself is bullshit but at least small family farms everybody had access to food and which by the way this is this is why marijuana is being legalized just Mm. it's the same it's the same power grab to scale it up scale it up right because illegality i'm writing a book about this too Illegality created barriers to entry right. and created barriers to economies of scale. So what this meant right. is... It was small family yeah. operations. Yep. And you know, that's last a ton night, of money. Yeah. We were just last night, we, we spent the night in Redland, this little town in Humboldt. And the woman that we were hanging out with, she, she said exactly that. She said, 10 years ago, it was much better here. It was much better. You could make... A living you had a small operation everybody was trimming buds everybody knew each other it was cool now boom it's all big money and everybody's being driven out and the wages for trimmers have gone through the through the through floor. the floor yeah yeah it used to be uh good trimmers could get 200 to 300 a pound 200 to 250 and these days on industrial lines it's like 50 a pound and apparently it's like slavery conditions. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. working seven days a week. You're living in a tent that you have to buy your food from the people. It's like what they used to do, what they still do. United Fruit Company does in, in Latin America, you know? So, so 
I, I put us on a digression about marijuana. Oh, yeah, um, right. We're but, talking about, about whether machines. we're a larval stage to give birth to techno life. Yeah. Um, so anyone who... Uh, anyone who promotes that notion... And I'm not, of course, saying you do. Anyone who seriously promotes that notion is is the enemy, and must be defeated, um, well, because okay. because it's killing life on the planet. And if here's one of the ways I put this is that if space aliens were coming down from outer space and they were doing exactly what capitalism is doing, they were changing the climate, they were vacuuming the oceans, they were converting the living planet into machines. We would all know what to do. We would, we would resist. We would destroy their their capacity to wage war on the planet. We would. It would make it, a great movie. Sure, if we could see it as that. Right. Well, that's the purpose of my work is to right. help people to see it like that. <laughs> yeah. Because I hear that is what's happening. Yeah. And and I I hear the perspective, and I think that that is the oh for God's sake, Bezos, uh, the guy who owns Amazon. He talks about the uh, how nobody wants an economy to go down. Everybody wants population to keep increasing forever. I was like, you're insane. Yeah. yeah. And this, I, I agree with you that that is the, that is the traje- trajectory. And that is a trajectory that ends in the end of life on the planet. And in fact, that's the uh, the uh, you know I was saying earlier that that's one of the things about my work was the death urge. That is that is a manifestation that is a manifestation of the death urge. Yeah. That the conversion of the living planet into machinery, which is not alive, machines aren't alive. I mean, well, we can have an animistic conversation about. I mean, I I believe that that wood is alive. I believe that rocks are alive. But then I got a question: if they're if they're converted into a microphone, is that? I read this thing, and this is I, I'm not I'm, this is not a definitive statement of my philosophy. But I remember reading this story when I was a kid, some science fiction story, terrible story to give a kid, about a chair that was alive and it was it had been been formed into a position, and it was basically in torment because the tr- that the chair was still alive, but it didn't want to be where it was. It didn't want to be converted into mm. this thing it wanted to be allowed to go back into the forest that influenced me pretty heavily i read that when i was seven or eight or nine or ten or something mm. anyway back to your original point um no I, I believe that's also a claim to virtue robert robert j lifton talked about how before you can commit any mass atrocity you have to convince yourself that what you're doing is not an atrocity but instead a good thing mm. so for example he wrote the nazi doctors and many other really good books and he said that the Nazis, for example, did not perceive themselves as committing mass murder and genocide. They perceived themselves as um, purifying the Aryan race and and gaining Lebensraum for the Germans. I mean, they're doing a good thing, mm. according to them. Yeah. And this is true generically. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my life, I have never once been a jerk. <laughs> I mean, every time I have objectively been a jerk, yeah. I've had it fully rationalized. Sure. You know, we act... I can't believe what he did to me. So I'm going to go ahead and just do yeah, this. Right. And and it's the same with that. That the, the the argument that we are a larval stage. 
going to say something else about it in a second, but that, that's simply a claim to virtue for the destruction that's happening. The other thing it is, is it's a simple restatement of the, um, the Christian sky god ethos that heaven is not here right now, but heaven is somewhere out there in the future. That the technotopian dream is very much Christian, um, and and like yeah, Lier eternal has life, eternal life, uh, which is a toxic mimic because it's eternal death. You know, yeah. it's 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 destroying life. It's very it's comfortable. A, yeah, <laughs> you have no nerve cells. You're very comfortable. Yeah, and um, you know they say rest in peace. <laughs> and that's really the end point of that yeah. sort of uh, what's it called the, the the addiction to comfort. Really, yeah. that's the, the end stage is rest just, in peace. You're right. Rest in peace. That's crazy. Hey, we should finish it here. Okay, I've I've taken up almost an hour and a half of your time. I can't well, believe it. Your questions are great. Rest in peace is a great place to end. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Derek Jensen. People, go read his books. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. Damn. Rest in peace, huh? Never thought of it that way. Thanks for listening to this episode. I really appreciate it. And uh, just a reminder to check out sunbasket.com slash TS. Uh, you get half off each of your first two orders. It brings the price to $5 a portion. If you eat, you can afford that. If you live in the U.S., check it out. It's good for the podcast. It shows advertisers that it's worthwhile to throw some cash my way uh that i've got listeners who follow up on suggestions and i don't suggest things that i don't truly believe in and i haven't uh checked out so thank you for your trust and let me know how you like it if you place some orders uh tell me what your favorite dishes are tell me what you think of the way it's packaged i know everything is sent in recyclable materials so if you have recycling in your area uh, which is a whole other subject. But if you do recycling in your area, everything that they send you can be recycled. All right. Thanks for listening. Here's to you, Bennett and Justin. And here's Mom and Carson. Bye. Okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Anthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals. Right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When it 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Dance into the ground 